We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two. All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Joir. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff. Welcome back, folks. It's great to be able to bring you today's interview with one of my comedy heroes, Mr. Tony Martin. If you're a successful show business person, you're lucky to feature in something iconic once in a career. But Tony Martin tends to do it every five years. There's the D-Gen, The Late Show, Stand Up with Mick Malloy, then the radio show Martin and Malloy, then Get This with Ed Cavalier and Richard Marsland, which really is as good as radio gets. He's also a film and television writer and director and the author of three successful books. The day I interviewed Tony, I had a voiceover go long on me, so I had to ring him from my car, which meant I didn't have the correct sound equipment with me. So you can't hear me very well, which is fine, but you can hear him, albeit with a few beeps that the recording software is required to keep for legal reasons that don't get in the way tony martin's not going to be upstaged by beeps so i started by asking him when he was most happy when was i most happy gee that's a that's a tricky question if any uh you know women that i've gone out with are listening obviously any uh at the early stages of any uh new relationship that's probably the correct answer (laughs) that's a bad one because then it's well what's wrong now (laughs) <laughs> so probably I should scrub that. <laughs> but uh, I, I tell you what I do remember is when I left school, because I grew up in a very sort of agricultural part of New Zealand where people were just fixated on uh, the All Blacks and rugby, yeah. and I had no interest in that. And uh, I was working as a forklift driver in an army surplus store, which wasn't a great deal of fun. But then I discovered the world of amateur theatre, Oh, yeah. And I did uh, four years of that before I, you know, attempted to get into, you know, proper show business. And I just, I remember that as being very happy time. A lot of drinking, a lot of uh, missed entrances, a lot of malfunctioning <laughs> props. And no one's being paid, so no one's going to be sacked. <laughs> you know, most people just going back to their job at Mitre 10 after they've taken the Julius Caesar costume off. It was... <laughs> It was just uh, four years of, of happiness, if I, as I remember it. I'm probably, you know, glossing over it a bit. But who did you play? Oh, well, I was just... But the first role I ever played was in, uh, you know, the movie Tom Jones with uh, yeah. Albert Finney. There was a play of that, and I was the misleadingly titled Amusing Constable. <laughs> who uh, failed to amuse night after night, as I remember. I think I had three lines and a giant pair of pantaloons and, you know, oh, then it was my. off to the bar. Yeah, yeah. It didn't matter if it went well or not. It was no. off the bar. That's right. Um, question two, who would you like to apologise to and why? Well, this is an interesting one because I, I thought of this recently. I, it's probably long overdue. But I should probably apologise to all of the people whose voices I redid. You know, all the actors in those shows we used to do. We did the Homicide one and we did the Olden Days, which was redubbing Rush. And then we did Barjars, which was redubbing uh, the Crawford series Bluey. And what's happened is that was over 20 years ago. But every year I will bump into an actor who will say, do you remember me? 
<laughs> and I would have redone, I would have taken some piece of dialogue that they were quite happy with and turned it into a rude joke. <laughs> I met, uh, you know, Alan Hardy, who's oh, yes. doomed to always be known as the son of Frank Hardy and the uh, father of Marie Hardy, but he's a talented yeah. actor and producer in his own right. And I met him for the first time a few years ago. He goes, you remember me? And I go, no. And he goes... I thought it was stupid Sideburns Day. <laughs> and he was the bloke who said that line in uh, in the olden days. And that, oh, my it just, God. It just happens all the time. I'm constantly bumping into actors whose work I've vandalised. It's but it's, it's fun. I, I wish you did it to some of the roles I, I've done over the years. <laughs> Obviously, uh, <laughs> they could have been improved. <laughs> well, that's it. I mean, a lot of the... You know, most of the actors were quite happy with it, and... But there was a couple who, yeah, who threatened to bring in lawyers. Our conversation moved on from lampooning to impersonation and how some people love being impersonated while others hate it. I think they they always end up saying that, well, I guess it's a compliment through very gritted teeth. Yeah. And I think it must be quite startling to hear yourself impersonated. And finally... I remember it happened to me and Mick. Uh, me and Mick Malloy, when we were doing Martin Malloy, some you know, student radio sent us a, a tape of an absolutely scathing parody of our radio show. And it was quite shocking <laughs> to hear because you are, for the whole t- of course, the first thing everyone says is, well, I don't sound like that. Yeah, and of course, yeah. you do sound like that. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, my God, do I say the word amazing that much? You know, it was a really good lesson. I just went, oh, well, I immediately wrote down five things I must remember never to say again. Right. And, and it does, I, I think anyone who's been impersonated will tell you it's quite, it's, it's almost like you've been stabbed. It's quite a violent yeah. thing to hear for the first time because they've sort of taken something that you, they, they've just made a cartoon of you. That's what an impersonation is. It's like a cartoon. Yeah. Question three, what is your greatest regret? Oh my goodness. Um, well... I mean, I guess the the lightweight answer to that is that I've never learned a musical instrument, and I think anyone who who can't play a musical instrument says that. I'd love to be able to do that. On the other hand, I'd hate to be one of those comedians who puts out an album of their serious songs, so so that's probably good. The serious answer to that is... is I, I think I was 37 years old where I went when I first went into psychotherapy. You know, oh, right. like yeah. Tony Soprano. Yeah. And it was so great. I just went, the, the, probably my biggest regret is that I didn't do that 20 years earlier because it was, right. it was mind expanding, I found. And, and do you still do it? No, I did it for six or seven years and I would like to do it again. But it's, a lot of people will say this, it's too hard to go back to the beginning. You know, mm. you, if you start with a new therapist, you've got to load the computer for a year. Oh, you've got to relive totally. everything. And, and so I, I would like to, but I'm, it's a bit too exhausting to imagine going back to it. But it was massively useful. I just, you know, I know people who, I've got friends who will go to the gym a couple of hours a day, but wouldn't ever consider doing any work on the brain. Yeah. And I think a lot of people certainly of my generation see it as it's like some sort of admission of failure or it's or it's akin to to admitting that you've got 
mental issues or something, but it's not. It's 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 like a gymnasium for for your brain. Now, in the age of mental health awareness, my next question could be interpreted as insensitive, but it's something that lurks in the minds of most comedians who seek psychological help, and that is, will it make them less funny? I asked Tony if he was ever worried about this. Oh, absolutely. I think most people in comedy my age remember what happened to John Cleese. <laughs> Remember, he wrote all those books and he was so much happier. But you look at that great moment in Faulty Towers when he's so crazy that he's crouching. Remember when he's crouching down on the ground with his hands over his head, jumping up and down? And that that is the genuine symptoms of a madman. Yeah. And you go, we're never going to get that again. Yeah. yeah that, that, Thanks for improving up. yourself, please, you selfish bastard. <laughs> but I found it, I mean, I guess if your comedy slightly depended on that, it, it, on a slight touch of madness, that would be the case. But all I found is it, in fact, increased my powers of observation in a way. It made me more alert to what people are really meaning when they're saying things, which is a very good skill to, to get the hang of. The, the simplest way to explain it is I went, oh, I was a two-dimensional person for, for 36 years, and now I feel like a three-dimensional person. Question four, what will you still need to do to feel you've lived a satisfactory life? Oh, man. See, I, that's tricky because I really don't have a lot to complain about. <laughs> Sort of, it sounds. Is the word churlish? I'm not really quite sure what that means, but I'd love to use it successfully at some point in my life. I think it might be churlish to suggest that. Well, I'd like to achieve a bit more. Certainly, uh, I'd like to. This sounds like a joke, but I would seriously like to have a crack at skydiving. Yeah, right. (laughs) It just looks great, but I'm just terrified about the landing bit. Yes. <laughs> you know, it looks it's all great till you hit the ground, I'm imagining. I've got yeah. very thin girlish ankles that I'm sure would shatter on impact. <laughs> well I always have a fear of landing with one side with one leg on either side of a corrugated iron fence. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah. yeah but I, like I love that. the idea of it. Although when you start, don't you have to sort of do the tandem jump? Yeah. Like you're a baby in a papoose on the front of a larger man. I'm not sure if I could go. I, I feel stupid doing that, but uh, I'm probably too old for a bad it. Day? What, what if he's having a bad day or he's depressed? He's <laughs> exactly. When are we opening the parachute? What yeah. parachute? <laughs> Question five. Who is the person who most influenced you and how? Oh, man. That is, I, I, that is a really tough one because I realised... I realised probably through, through doing therapy that because my dad had uh, buggered off very early on, I was just attracted to mentor figures, probably to this day. I've got a massively long list of, of, of mentors, and I had some really great uh, uh, teachers at school, which I think is very important. Mm. And I had uh, a, a guy who I was in an amateur production of Endgame with, uh, you know, wow. Samuel Beckett, with the rubbish bins. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, was, I was one of the Oscar the Grouch-style uh, rubbish bin dwellers in Endgame, and, and this bloke played uh, the character of Clov. His name was uh, Gil Harris. He's now a, a well-known uh, academic and author in the United States called Jonathan Gil Harris. But he ah. was he sort of took me under his wing and... 
And uh, there was no comedy. There was no live comedy in, in Auckland in the early 80s at all. But he would just jump up before a band and go on a mad rant or do a monologue at a music gig or something. And he just showed me that you could, you know, you could make comedy happen anywhere. And he made me very um, alert about listening to people's sentences and listening to the words people use. And I'd always sort of done that, but I'd never really thought of it as a useful skill. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'd always been something, someone who, even as a kid, would write down things that people said that made me laugh. But he sort of showed me how you could turn that into characters and, and you know, probably so much of what I, of, of techniques I still use in comedy to, to this day would be thanks to him. So I googled Jonathan Gil Harris, and he's now a professor of English and the author of many successful books, mainly specialising in Renaissance drama and literature. He's got blonde hair and a face that's simultaneously smart and comedic. Check him out. You definitely can imagine he and Tony being friends. Well, I remember we in this play we had a... It was done in this theatre at the, the Auckland University, and... and uh, there was a fire in uh, what do you call it a fire um, safety guy who would constantly come in and, and 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 we'd be in the middle of rehearsals and you'd move something and we'd just hear this guy's voice in the dark go no <laughs> we go to go no and then he'd explain to you why you were in breach of some safety issue his name was Bill Brinsley and I remember Gil, my friend Gil, was just obsessed with Bill Brinsley and would do an impression of, of him. And we would do, uh, and then we created a whole family of Brinsleys. And I think we actually might have even put on a stage show called At Home with the Brinsleys at one point, where every it was a whole family of of, of uh, health and safety people. And and so it all just came from the little seed of hearing this guy go, no, every time you move something. And it just showed me how something really tiny like that can can blow up into something really funny. Um, question six. When was the last time you cried and why? This is uh, this is perhaps a bit daggy, but I, I was crying several times during that HBO Frank Sinatra documentary that was on. Yeah. I was a yeah. massive, I am a massive... Sinatra fan. It wasn't so much Frank's story, which is a, a pretty compelling story nonetheless. It was just the music. I mean, the music mm. really gets to me. And I, I, I'm, I have absolutely no interest in the 1940s Frank Sinatra. Same. I, I, I just, I cannot even get through a song. It does nothing for me. But when you hit that 50s Capitol period, yeah. With that amazing, you know, it's always called the greatest comeback in, in show business history, but there was more to it than that. Something happened to his voice. It got deeper and it was probably smoking. It's probably well, the only good thing that's ever come out of smoking is Frank Sinatra's <laughs> voice I, of the I 1950s. It, well, I put it down to Ava. I think his heart got well and truly broken. Well, that's right. I remember we all laughed when we first saw Spinal Tap and Bruno Kirby goes, if you've lived and loved like Frank has. And then as you get older, you go, oh, Bruno Kirby was right, wasn't he? <laughs> Bruno Kirby was right, mate. I mean, how many times have I... I just had one for the road on, on loop whenever I got my heart broken, you know? Oh, I was amazed when... Because, you know, I could feel the 50 years coming in that documentary, and I'm going, what are they going to open with? What is going to be the first Nelson Riddle production we hear? And they went with, it was just one of those things. Oh. And if you were watching it on the big speakers at home, when that kicked in, that was really, it hit me in the guts, that one. Yeah. And they yeah. had a bit of, I'm a fool to want you. And they didn't even play the best version of it. And it's still, you know, yeah, I was on the blub throughout that. But it was the music that was doing it. Question seven, what is your current state of mind? 
Like, well, at the moment, my my brain is slightly frazzled and accelerated because I've gone back to doing stand-up comedy in the last couple of months. And yeah. I had before that, I'd spent ten months uh, writing a project and making my own hours, and you know, sleeping in and and sort of just being my own boss. And then suddenly you jump back into stand-up, and it's like, whoa, I'm in the water slide. Yeah. And it's and yeah. and, and you, your brain has to work faster, and you're constantly. You know, if I walk down to the shops, I'm running through the jokes and going, could that one be better? And it's just that mindset of, of, of the stand-up comedian that I hadn't sort of been in for a few years. So, yeah, my brain is full of jokes. Not all of them good. Are you enjoying it again? I'm loving it. I am absolutely yeah. loving it. And I'm much less... I take it much less personally when I go badly, which I, you know, which you do when you go back to it. There's a lot yeah. of humiliating gigs and... That would have thrown me in, into an incredible depression years ago. But now I, you know, that cliche of you learn more from a bad gig than you do from a good one. I sort of, you know, I'll make myself do a tough one. Like I'll do a place like the Exford. Oh, it's a very God. tough room. And it's, yeah. it's just a good way of taking the hammer to a routine, which is probably way too long and needs editing down. And a, there's nothing like a bad gig to make you take out those four jokes that aren't quite working. <laughs> <laughs> God, I'll never be seen again. I mean, I find it like listening to the tape on the way home is, is a very humbling experience. Oh, I haven't been doing that this time round. I have quite a good black box in my brain as oh. it is, but the, the tape is very humbling, I find. <laughs> the last is never as loud, mate. Well, when I, I remember, you know, Casey Bonetto. Yes, yeah. He, I, I, when I went back to it in 2011, I hadn't done it for six years, and I did some shows at the Trades Hall, and he was the tech, and without telling me, he'd taped the shows, and he made me these beautiful CDs, of, and he'd done fonts and everything, and little album covers, and he sent them to me, and I, I didn't listen to them, to them for about a month, and then one night I'd had a couple of drinks, I went, oh, have a listen to this, I reckon these will be hilarious, I reckon, <laughs> I reckon these albums could go straight onto iTunes, and I had a listen, and it was really flabby. Oh. It was, I'd, you know, I'd, it was a guy who hadn't done stand-up for six years, but thought he was still quite good at it. <laughs> and it was a real lesson. There were some good jokes, but I took way too long to get to them. And and that was just like someone chucking a bucket of ice water in my face, and that made me go, no, you you can't just go back after six years and think you're going to be any good. It's like running it. a. It's true. It's like running a marathon after you know you, with no training. Oh, you've just you know it's bit by bit and. You know, I, I just did this show at the at the Fringe Festival, and I did eleven warm up, twenty minute spots in preparation for that. And thank yeah. Christ, I did because you know I'd go in with a four minute routine, and and literally one line would make it into the show. <laughs> wow! But that's 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 normal. That's yeah. I think that's what most people do. I'm hoping. Well, Seinfeld. No, we saw it. We saw it on that documentary comedian. Um, well, that's, I mean, I've mentioned this in a few interviews, but I do remember that when that, you know, that clip of Jerry Seinfeld when he went back to doing, you know, he threw the material out and, and just was, there's a clip of him playing to like 25 people. Yeah. And he's dying and someone heckles him and that clip got shown on the news. And oh. I remember friends of mine were shocked by it. And every comedian I know who saw it just went, yep, that's Tuesday night. That's what Tuesday night looks like. <laughs> it is exhilarating and painful and wonderful. It's it's a very strange thing to do, but yeah, yeah. It oh, is. mate, I'm glad you're back. 
on, on behalf of Australia, <laughs> I'm glad you're back. Um, question eight, what do you consider your greatest achievement? Oh, well, that's, you know, that's such a grand phrase, greatest achievement. <laughs> you know, it feels like I should say, well, when I created Live Aid or something like that, <laughs> but I don't really have one of those. I mean... Yeah, I was pretty happy with Get This, I'd have to say, the radio show. Um, that was one where we, there were a few things we did in that where I went, that's as good as it could have been. You know that yeah. thing? You know when you do yeah. something good and you, part of you goes, oh, but it could have been better if we'd had an hour longer to film it. But I remember we, in Get This, we did a thing where we, de- we got Triple M to declare war on uh, Patterson Lakes Primary School FM which was a small radio station run by a primary school that had a 10-block broadcast radius. We decided to go them, and we ran these attack promos, and then we wrote attack promos for them to run so the kids could attack us back. That's brilliant. And I remember hearing that and thinking that that's one of the few things where I went, I don't think that could have been any better. <laughs> but at the same time, I can't really cite a 10-minute sketch as, as, as anyone's greatest achievement. I think the, the books that I've done, I'm pretty uh, quite happy with. They, they're, yeah, not, yeah. they're not the most popular thing I've done, but when so, I know that when someone comes up to me in the street and mentions... There's a few things in those books that have struck a chord with people. One is obviously hemochromatosis. I yes. think I've... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've become, although Husey, I think, is the, the, the official voice of hemochromatose. But I'm sort of, I'm his second in command on that front. I feel like that, you know, I've had people come up to me and say that they went and had their iron levels tested because of that story. And so so that, yeah. I feel like, oh, that's some, oh, I've actually done something useful. As my mum used to say, why don't you do something useful? <laughs> I think I find that is actually useful, but I'm not saying it like I meant for that to happen. It was just meant to be a bunch of jokes. Tony and I live in the same neighbourhood and I once bumped into him in the street and I said, hey Tony, and he turned around sharply with a look of fear in his eyes and at the time it occurred to me that this guy's been involved in so many successful shows over such a long period, he would have had a lot of people yelling out hey Tony to him over the years. So I asked him if he's able to profile his fans before they open their mouths. If someone's in their like 50s, it'll be the degeneration. If they're in their yep. 40s, it'll be it'll be the late show or or, or Martin Malloy and then younger you go to to get this and then but the yeah. the, the the people who like the books are always really passionate about something because there's Obviously, amateur theatre people will come up mm. to me and talk about that stuff, and I get people who were also addicted to the Nintendo 64 game Goldeneye. Yes, yeah. They'll, they'll yep. stop me at an airport and talk for an hour <laughs> about, I remember smashing all the beakers in the uh, laboratory level as well one Sunday afternoon. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how, like, really obscure things will strike a chord with people. Question nine, Tony. Who would you want on your side in a battle and why? That's an easy one for me to answer. Pete Smith, I think, would be. <laughs> I sort of met Pete Smith in, in 1990 when we were working at, at Channel 9 and, and I put him in a sketch and we just needed somebody to be a, a, a comedy voiceover man and we thought, let's get the guy who really does it. And he's sort of become one of my best friends. Uh, wow. And, and I have Christmas with his family every year because my family are in New Zealand and... And he, he's just an amazing person to have. What, what, I can't imagine him in a wartime situation, uh, you know, barking very well-enunciated orders, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> it's, we're attacking this Wednesday. But, um, he, yeah, he's just an incredible friend, really. He, he's so eccentric. He'll, he has this thing where he'll drive past my house 
and he won't even stop the car. He'll just wind the window down. He'll just chuck an envelope over your fence, and and it'll be a package, and I'll you know open it up, and it'll be the complete Rodney Dangerfield on DVD. Oh, and you go, wow. where did he get this? <laughs> But he's, you know, he's just a really great guy, and it's—I know it sounds like show business bullshit, but anyone who's who's met or, or worked with him has, has fallen under the spell of Pete. Well, I've only read articles about him, you know, interviews, and just talk—his survival instincts are what kind of grabbed me. I well, I think he was the—he was the, the longest-serving employee of, of Channel Nine, and you know, having wow. having been shown to the car park at Channel Nine on at least one occasion, I. <laughs> quite an achievement if you can do that i think he's still technically the charity ambassador for nine so he might he's sort of semi he's the busiest retired man i know i've, I've got to ask when were you showing the car park uh well we did the pilots for we did five pilots for the late show at channel nine that show was actually developed at channel nine in oh 1990 God, nice. and i think we I'm trying to remember what happened. I think we came in and our parking spaces were now occupied by the cast of a soap opera called Family and Friends, which nobody remembers. Final question, Tony. What would you like your last words to be? I think I'd like them to be, and I'll be back with more after this. (laughs) Perfectly enunciated, mate. Pete Smith would be proud. Pete. There's three syllables in Wednesday, as he always reminds me. That was Tony Martin. Keep an eye on Tony's Twitter feed for when he's doing more stand-up. And if you want to learn a bit more about him, check out the Greg Fleet interview on this podcast. You can Twitter us at The10Questions or Facebook us at 10Questions with Adam Zwar. See you next time. We have ignition sequence start. Short distance, high impact. Five, four, three, two... All engines running. Ten questions with Adam Zwar. Big names, great minds. Make yourself a cup of tea. Liftoff. We have liftoff.